this is a huge project and it's a project like none I've ever heard of ever anywhere, which really excites us. Welcome to Spur of the Moment, the podcast of Colorado State University's Spur Campus in Denver, Colorado. We really believe that empowering people to own pets and to help care for those pets while they're in that relationship is really important. Animal welfare is a very homogenous profession. That's not okay. It's not okay to just say that's how it is. We need to go back, way back. Why is that? On this podcast, we talk with experts in food, water, and health, both human and animal, about how they are tackling the big challenges in these areas. I'm Jocelyn Hiddle, and I am joined today by April Steele, the executive director of Dumb Friends League. Dumb Friends League will be a partner with CSU in our new Vita building, part of the Spur campus, and they do wonderful work in the Denver area and beyond. Welcome, April. Hi, Jocelyn. Thank you so much for having me today. Thanks for being here. April, can you tell us a little about Dumb Friends League? What does the organization do? Sure. So the Dump Friends League is an animal welfare organization that started in 1910. And back in 1910, dumb was a very common term for animals that don't have the capacity of human speech. So it was not um, associated with some of the connotations as far as intelligence that it is today. We definitely get that question a lot about, are you saying animals are dumb? And we absolutely are not saying that. But we do believe that we are the voice for animals who cannot speak. And yes, they communicate with us but they don't speak. The Dump Friends League is known as a shelter, but we're so much more than a shelter. We have several shelters, including the Malone Center, which is in Denver, the Buddy Center, which is in Castle Rock. And this month we're opening a shelter in rural Colorado and Alamosa. We receive about 20,000 animals a year. And with those animals, we do everything we can to make them healthy and behaviorally sound and to place them. That is about 58 animals a day. And almost all of those come from our community. We do receive some animals from Oklahoma, but we really are prioritizing animals in Colorado over other states so we can make sure we're taking care of our own backyard first. We have an entire veterinary team that addresses the needs, the medical needs of these animals. And then we have an eight-person behavior team that addresses the behavior needs of the animals too. Um, But more than just the shelters, we also serve the community in several ways. We are leaders, thought leaders in socially conscious sheltering, which is a movement that we started in Colorado and is happening nationally and even internationally right now. We provide services to people who have pets that need urgent veterinary care and they cannot afford that veterinary care through our Solutions Veterinary Hospital. And we'll talk a little bit more about the future of SPUR and what we're going to do there. Um, We do vaccine clinics. We also do a lot of spay and neuter that's either highly subsidized or free for the community. And um, this next year, we're looking at spaying and neutering over 13,000 community animals on top of all the animals that we spay and neuter at the shelter. So we are doing doing quite a bit. We, we work on some legislative issues as well to try to make animal welfare better in Colorado. So I'm so impressed to hear that list of activities and some of the numbers associated with it. You all are quite large for this kind of organization, aren't you? Yeah, you know, it's absolutely amazing. We are in a community that supports animals and values animals in ways that 
very few communities do in the world. And because of that, we were able to do some really impactful work. You know, next year, our budget's probably going to be about $26 million. And that is all from community support, fundraising, um, events, you could pick up our organization and plop it down in almost any other community in the country and it wouldn't be successful because our community is what makes us successful. But if you think about it, we raise from our community $15 million every year to help animals. And this is just people that voluntarily say, hey, this matters to me and I want to make a difference. And to have a community that steps up year after year after year so we can sustain these programs and do this work is quite humbling and pretty amazing. April, you mentioned the Dumb Friends League treats the animals that come into the shelters and also treats community animals. I think you said 13,000 spays and neuters. Can you say more about the community component? Sure. So um, it we have a couple different pieces to it. We call it our community veterinary services. So historically, our mobile units have been a big part of that work, a Meow Mobile and a Lulu Mobile, which go out and spay and neuter cats and dogs. And cats have always been free and um, dogs have been highly subsidized at about $50 per spay and neuter. And this isn't intended for people that can afford to go to a veterinarian and develop a relationship and, and have that the benefit of what that relationship brings to the relationship between the pet and the, and the human, um, but it has it is is meant to serve people that can't afford to do that. Um, in the pandemic, those mobile units were hard to manage and keep people socially distanced and safe. And um, about four years ago, we opened a spay neuter clinic um, just for cats. And at that space, we would bring cats in um, fifty to eighty a day and spay and neuter them. And um, for the first three years, we had some funding nationally, so it was completely free and um, vaccinated these animals as well as spayed and neutered them. Um, we are going to um, start, we've just started charging a very minimal fee. I think it's $20 for a spay or neuter of a, of a cat at this point, including vaccines. Um, and moving forward, we're looking forward to having that spay neuter opportunity move to the SPUR campus as well. And we also do spay neuter for um, dogs, but on specific needs. We partner with Denver Animal Protection and where they're dealing with an animal that's out of compliance with the animal ordinances and they need a spay and neuter to get into compliance, we will help provide that so it's not a barrier for pet ownership for people in the community. And then we're also looking in the future to focus on um, spaying and neutering pit bulls because we do have an overpopulation um, issue with pit bulls, but not really with the other breeds at this point in Metro Denver. Interesting. April, why so many more cats versus dogs in your spay-neuter activities? Sure. So, and this is sort of changing this year, but overpopulation has in, in Metro Denver, especially front range, somewhat in all of Colorado, um, dog overpopulation, we've, we're getting a handle on it. We are having more people that want to adopt dogs and we are having people bring dogs to us, which is such a great problem to have. Um, it means that we can adopt dogs that are older, that have some more chronic needs and people are eager to, to give those dogs a home instead of just the cute puppies. Um, but we have such a demand for adoption and people want to do the right by animals and not buy them that we are even able to partner with some other communities to bring in animals for that. Cats have been a different story. You know, cats are common in our communities, stray cats, free roaming cats, and 
guess what? They breed in our communities. And so that's a perpetuating problem. And much of the work we're doing is addressing the community cat issue. We still spay and neuter community cats, which are feral and unowned cats um, at no cost, trying to address that overpopulation issue. And we were still seeing quite a few cats coming into us. Interestingly, during the pandemic, that has changed for all of the front range shelters in Colorado. We don't know what it's going to be like afterwards, but cats have really still been the challenge with overpopulation. Can you talk a little bit about um, what you see as being the important components of, and, and maybe it's the human-animal bond or maybe it's other things, but as you think about the links between animal health and human health, what comes to mind for you? What, what has, has been part of your experience in the work you do? You know, I love that question because there was a, a time not that long ago when there was a common belief system that if you can't afford an animal, you shouldn't have an animal. And as we are realizing both the physical, mental, and emotional health benefits of pet ownership, this is becoming a DEI issue. It's becoming an issue that if if animals are so hard to come by that um, you know some rescues are charging $2,000 for a puppy at a rescue, that makes it so people that don't have significant means cannot even find a pet or get a pet. And, and that's not acceptable because we know that pets do so much. And so many people, especially during the pandemic, but always are isolated and pets are the safe relationship that they can have. It's the place where they feel no judgment and they can have a really bad day. And it's still going to be the same loving relationship as when they have a really good day. Um, Many of the folks we work with at Solutions Veterinary Hospital in that um, underserved community are um, folks that are very isolated, even more so than people that, you know, have full capacity to have full-time jobs and are interacting in different social structures. And we really believe that empowering people to own pets and to care, help care for those pets while they're in that relationship is really important. And I'm, I'm guessing that the past year has really highlighted that even more than usual. I mean, that isolation that, that so many people are feeling and how it is disproportionately felt by different populations. Yes, it's interesting. Adoption demand has been intense and um, there's a lot of fear. I see um, articles going around talking about when everyone goes back to work, which it's never going to really be normal like it was before, I don't believe. But when people do start going back to work, are they all going to relinquish their animals to the shelter? And there's a national study done recently that showed that 75% of people actually intend to get a second this was dogs specifically to keep their dog company when they go back to work. I don't know where they're going to get those dogs, but you know, it was, it, it, it's interesting to see that uh, what the pandemic has done to this issue, as far as the isolation and the needing the relationship with an animal and how meaningful that is. Um, it, it, that has also gotten very intense and we know that our solutions veterinary hospital and we're in at that hospital, we're just addressing really serious conditions that probably the animal would not survive if they did not get care. And we're talking obstructed intestinal tracts, inability to urinate, um, severe glaucoma, you know, things that are, are critical and need attention right away. It's a first come first serve basis, at least during the pandemic, because we want to be able to take care of the most urgent needs um, first. 
people were lining up sometimes at 4 a.m. to get that care. And often by 8 a.m., we have, we're full. We're at capacity for all of the surgeries we can do for that day. And as you can imagine, people care so much about this animal. The animal means so much to them, especially during the pandemic. And then we have the economic pressures of not being able to afford the care that that animal is going to need. And they have to consider an economic euthanasia or some other horrible decision-making process. Um, they get intense and angry and it's been tough. It's been tough on our team. It's been um, a real challenge. So we're really looking forward to expanding that opportunity at SPUR. That sounds like it has been really hard for, for you and your team. And you guys are all providing such a, a valuable service, not only um, to obviously to the animals and the owners, but also to the community in general, and especially during a particularly tough time. You, you've touched on some diversity, equity, and inclusion components of what you do. Can you reflect a little on what the last year or so has meant and, and what you have done differently, what has been enhanced, um, or if there are conversations you've been a part of for a long time that you're now seeing being elevated more due to Black Lives Matter movement and um, the other conversations that have been more prominent in the last year? Sure. And this... This, this is a very important topic for me. Um, so it's been interesting. For years, we've had conversations about the people that tend to support our work and the people that adopt from us tend to be one type of population and the people that um, utilize our other services are a much more diverse population. And we need to have, we've been having two conversations all along about how do we engage different folks in the different pieces of this and, and move that along. Um, we've done some good work and we've really failed in some areas too. And I think the one thing that I've learned the most about the Black Lives Matter movement and the whole DEI conversation is it's messy. And it doesn't mean you don't keep trying and you don't move, keep moving forward, um, but it's easy to offend and it's easy to miss something and it's easy to do it wrong. Um, but the fact that anyone that people are trying and that they're wanting to partner and they're being sensitive to missteps is, is super important. So we, you know, animal welfare is a very homogenous profession um, in Colorado, at least, but even nationally. So, so was veterinary medicine. And so a couple things about DEI is that's not okay. It's not okay to just say that's how it is. It's, it, we need to go back way back. Why is that? You know, there are studies that show that um, in elementary school, there's a pretty equal desire to be a veterinarian between races and, and, and neurodiversity um, folks and all the different types of diversity that we could talk about. And it really feels like some people get told they can't, or they get talked out of it, or they get diverted from that path. And one of the really neat things about the SPUR project, and I know I'm, I'm kind of preempting that conversation, but um, is that we're going to be able to engage these folks in veterinary medicine and animal welfare and get them excited about the work and then hopefully help them map out a career path to, to, through that excitement. We have expanded our board of directors to be more diverse this year. So that feels really good. And then the other thing that we've done is, you know, we get a lot of, we have a lot of jobs. We have, well, 
Right now we have 280 employees and next year we'll, with Spur and some other things, we're probably gonna have about 340 employees. So we have a, a significant employment opportunity. And many times, especially for some of the uh, more executive positions and the exempt positions, we're not getting any applicants that are diverse. It's all white women. <laughs> And in our field, um, being male is diverse, so it's a little bit different than some of the other fields. Um, so what we're talking about is when we have our candidates and we're going to start interviewing, do we say, okay, we got here, this is what we're dealing with, let's, you know, again, another, another candidate pool without diversity, or do we say, no, this is not good enough. We are here, but let's have a conversation further. Let's continue to um, connect through social networks to get people excited about a career opportunity that they may not even realize exists and really be proactive in enhancing that diversity pool for our jobs and mm-hmm. positions. Yep. So you, um, it's super important. And I, th- I think um, that understanding kind of where those inflection points are in the pathway to these different kinds of careers uh, you know, you mentioned elementary school and middle school, sort of thinking of how can we sort of step our way backward to helping kids at a younger and younger age be able to envision themselves in a, in a career pathway and keep that vision for themselves as they get older um, and various different factors influence how they think about themselves and how they think about their future. So very important. Thank you. And as you mentioned, that is one of the things that we are hoping to do with the CSU Spur campus, which is part of the redevelopment of the National Western Center, as you know, to be able to bring kids and families through our doors and get them excited about careers they might not have been thinking about for themselves and to try to retain that excitement and to help point them toward the educational pathways that will lead to those careers and make it really easy to keep that interest and commitment to um, those career paths that they think that that they think that they can do when they're really young, but maybe maybe that tends to drift a little as they get older. Yeah, light light the spark and feed the flame is what there. We oh, there do. you go. That was <laughs> so much more concise way of saying <laughs> of saying that. Thank you. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Spur and your role there. You've mentioned that the Solutions Clinic will be expanding there, so you you will be offering some veterinary care. Um, but can you tell us a little bit more about what the league, as you call it, will be doing at Spur and, and why it's a good fit? Sure. So um, I, I, there's three ways I feel like we're really strongly intersecting with Spur. And the, the Dumb Friends League is thrilled to collaborate with Colorado State University. We've been in these planning sessions, what, five years now? I Something think. like that, I yes. know you've been much longer than that. But um, just just having it come to fruition and seeing what it is, it's this is a huge project. And it's a project like none I've ever heard of ever anywhere, which really excites us. So we are going to have a spay neuter clinic is going to move over to the second floor at Spur and we will be doing cat spay neuter there. We are also going to have a full service veterinary hospital only for underserved folks. We are a little bit concerned that, that um, it's gonna be hard to keep only the underserved community coming to Spur because it's going to be such a beautiful building and it's going to be such a place where people walk through and want to be a part of. So initially we're going to use it for overflow from our solutions veterinary hospital that exists now. And when people come to relinquish an animal, if they're relinquishing an animal to the shelter only because of a medical reason that they feel like they can't do right by their animal because of their resources, but they truly have a good relationship and want to keep that animal, we'll refer those folks over for care at the Spur Solutions 
Children's Hospital, um, and then veterinarians in our community um, who have made a diagnosis and their owners, the pet owners can't afford the care, they don't have the ability to provide that care, will also be able to refer over. That's our intention right now. So for the vet, full service veterinary hospital, we're going to have that subsidized care and it is very highly subsidized by our donors. Um, so, you know, most of the procedures we do there are probably, you know, cost 25% of what it costs in, in um, private practice. And that's not because private practitioners are overcharging. It's because we have subsidies from donors to help cover that. And we don't need, we're not making a profit. We're actually investing over a million, well, $3 million a year in the program. So, um, so that's a piece of spur. And then what's super exciting though, is that the surgery suite, the dental suite, and one of the exam rooms are going to be completely on view for the public. So we're going to have glass walls instead of opaque walls. And when the surgeons are in there doing their work, they'll have the capacity to communicate with the public and the folks watching to see, um, ask questions, whether those are children getting their sparklet um, or if they're adults that are just curious. Um, and there'll be all kinds of surgeries and all kinds of dental procedures. So, you know, it's not behind closed doors anymore. People can really see what veterinarians do and what veterinary technicians do and what veterinary medicine is all about and how to care best for their pets, which is also an important piece. And then that leads me right into the humane education piece of it. So we're working really closely with CSUs, and I have to say incredible humane education um, and, and education exhibit uh, goals to create experiences for the guests. So we will have um, our team help, helping with humane education programs about how to care for animals, animal welfare issues, um, even anti-bullying lessons um, that we use animal compassion to help people understand um, bullying. And then we're still looking at how we fit this together and who does which piece, but there's going to be experiences of doing a physical exam or going to CSU's gonna have a virtual reality room. And it's gonna tie together really neat to uh, get people excited about veterinary medicine and animal welfare. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's one of my favorite features of the Spur Campus as well. This, uh, what we call on-show veterinary hospital as part of the Vita building. I'm so grateful to your team for being willing to, to do that. Um, it is different, right? To be doing your work, your, your profession, and also explaining it to people at the same time. So um, how are you thinking about preparing your vets to do that and, and the, the whole team, not just the veterinarians? Yeah, that is one of my current challenges. Um, so thanks, Jocelyn. No, no sorry. Uh, it's, um, so we are uh, a very introverted, introverted profession, veterinarians in general. There are exceptions and we're looking for those exceptions. <laughs> and um, it, because it does take a, a level of ability to enjoy being on view and to talk to public and take questions and be able to concentrate on what you're doing and answer questions at the same time. We have a lot of fears. Um, we fear that the pet's owner will be watching the surgery and feel like it's something they could handle, but then when they see their pet anesthetized, it's a really difficult emotional process for them. Um, we have a, uh, but we're really excited about it. And really we've taken the approach that this is going to be so impactful that we're going to figure out ways to make it work. And we're going to have 
have volunteers outside of the space that are able to um, explain what's happening in the space. It's not going to be only on the on the shoulders of the people in the room. We have microphones that are hands free so the doctors don't have to try to do other things other than what they need to be doing when that animal is having surgery. Um, it's going to be fantastic and we're going to figure it out. It, it's going to be something that kind of like COVID might be might change along the way until we get it figured out. Let's talk a little bit about you. As we have already discussed, the Spur Campus is one of our goals is to inspire kids to engage in these topics of food, water, and human and animal health and the environment, um, and and also to uh, help maybe demystify uh, the career paths and how you get to to be a contributor in those fields. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your story, how it is that you came to be leading an organization like Dumb Friends League. And did you always want to be a veterinarian? Tell us a little about your journey. Sure. And uh, yeah, I love to tell the story because in some ways I, you know, society might expect that I would become a veterinarian because I'm a ca- Caucasian female. Um, but in a lot of ways, I was the the child that, that wasn't expected to do much. So um, I was born and raised in Denver and Denver metro area. Uh, when I was three, my parents got divorced. And so I had a single mom and she worked multiple jobs. So starting at about when I was six, I would take care of myself from about 6 a.m. till 10 p.m. and make my meals and uh, just made it work. We moved eight times before I was 14. So there was a lot of uh, living in poverty and moving from community to community and not building roots and long, long-standing relationships. Um, when I was 14, I actually moved out and lived on my own for quite a while and managed high school and uh, working at fast food restaurants to pay rent. And that was a fascinating time for, for me as well. So um, not neither of my parents had graduated from college and I had all the excuses not to 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 do what I've done and I've always wanted to be a veterinarian and I do not know why I had a cat that I loved dearly and that cat was my true connection growing up it was like that child in isolation having a relationship and like we've discussed with COVID and other other relationships and probably why I uh, relate to that so much but her name was Thumbs because she had extra toes and she, we didn't go to a veterinarian regularly. You know, this was in the seventies and uh, very early eighties. And um, it wasn't, we didn't have the means to do that. There were no opportunities for able to do that. And one day um, she was sick and my mom finally decided she had to do something and took her in and she had leukemia virus and they had to euthanize her. And um, that was really impactful to me. I didn't get to say goodbye. I didn't know what sick was, you know, it's kind of that child learning about death thing. And um, for some reason, even though I didn't go to the veterinary hospital at that point in time, I decided at that point I wanted to be a veterinarian. So I was eight or nine when I made that decision. And I joke, sometimes it's just because I'm so stubborn and don't want to change my mind that I got through um, to becoming a veterinarian. And and other times when I'm more serious, it's really about my compassion for animals and knowing that healing is a calling. And that's how I felt. So I went to um, undergrad at CSU. And after one year, I had my whole life plan, all student loans and a few grants, you know, there was not any funding for this. Um, And then it's kind of a long story, but I was helping a friend 
And I, I signed up for the army with her because she was terrified and she had no other options. And I joined the army just with the intention of going to basic and advanced training and then going straight to the reserves and missing one semester of school and undergrad. But the day I went to basic training, Saddam invaded Kuwait. There was all of a sudden a war we never thought was going to happen. I got activated and I was, I was in the veterinary corps inspecting food. So that I spent some time, a little more time than I expected doing that. But then I got back on track and got back into undergrad and then got accepted to veterinary school at CSU. And I loved my experience at Colorado State University's College of Veterinary Medicine. I think it was probably the happiest time of my life, just learning how to heal and building relationships with other students. And the education is, was just incredible. When I graduated, I um, graduated on Friday and started working on Monday. The veterinarian I, I, I signed up to practice with went on vacation for a couple of weeks. So I um, ended up doing all kinds of things all by myself and jumping in. And um, the, the training in veterinary school was great. And I was able to be a veterinarian all by my lonesome. And it was great when he came back and could mentor me too. I think that's really important. Um, and, and I didn't mention this, but part of what we're doing with SPUR and is, is teaching and teaching veterinary students. And we're also having interns and that mentorship and teaching is also something I'm very passionate about for many reasons. I practiced medicine in Denver for 18 years. I um, built my own practice. I love the clients and my, my team there. It was wonderful. And then the CEO of the Dumb Frenzy, who had been in that role for 44 years, approached me out of what I thought was total blue and asked me if I would be his successor. And I thought he was crazy. Um, I couldn't um, imagine myself doing anything other than being a veterinarian and healing. And I'd finally gotten to a place in my career where I could took, I took six weeks off and rode my bike from Denver to Virginia and could have these breaks and, you know, just really enjoy life a bit. And um, so I, I didn't see the opportunity for what it was initially, but once I did, I realized how many animals and lives, human and animal lives I could impact through this leadership and through this role. So one of the things throughout my entire life I've done is said yes. And even when there've been those voices in my head that say, are you sure you can do this? I, I, I was really good at quieting those. And there have been many times when I look back and said, if I knew what it was going to take to do this, I probably would have had the courage to do it. But you know, sometimes ignorance is a little bit bliss if you're good at responding, figuring things out on the fly. And, and, you know, it comes down to ethics, leadership, and um, just willingness to have real conversations with people. And I think that those skill sets can help in all different kinds of leadership opportunities. So I've been with the league about six and a half years, and I've been the CEO for um, three and a half years. It's been amazing. Well, they are very lucky to have you at the helm and you and the organization have done incredible work here. Can you talk a little bit about what a day in the life looks like for you? Yeah, it's funny you ask because that was the first question I had when I was asked to do this role. And so I reached out to my uh, one of my clients and good friends, Kim Day, who's the CEO of Denver International Airport. And I said, what's it like? What do you do every day? Because <laughs> I'm sure it's not surgery and talking to you know clients. And um, yeah, my, every day is different. 
really is. Some days I do a podcast, um, but other, you know, often it is uh, quite a few emails. I probably deal with two or 300 emails easily every day. Um, meetings, talking about how best to support our teams, what best strategy to move forward, working with our board of directors, getting them, making sure they're really engaged and excited about our work and trying to, you know, a lot of what I do is try to inspire people, inspire donors to feel like they can make a difference so many people want to make a difference and they have trouble finding a place where they know they are their their gifts really will make a difference and when we connect around that and they're grateful for the opportunity to give us support it feels amazing so that's a big part of my work um, some advocacy and thought leadership work um, serving on national boards is a part of what I do um, but really most important part is taking care of our team and making sure they're supported, that there's people care. We have a saying, which is the culture that I am trying to um, perpetuate within the organization, which is in every interaction, the person you have to maintain your integrity and enhance the other person's dignity. And if you've done that, then you're good to go. You can have hard conversations. You can say no, but you say it in that way. And um, it's been it's been really fun to watch the evolution of the team. Great. Yeah, that sounds a lot like the days of many leaders, I would guess, of organizations of various different types, those different chunks of work that fall to you as the leader of a team and the creator of culture and a person who needs to inspire both internally and externally. But it's wonderful that you are able to do that for an organization that is about the thing that was the genesis of your career. So absolutely. What I need a stress break, I can go downstairs and touch animals, which is not what many CEOs can do. <laughs> That's right. They can't go scratch an ear or uh, get, get a little uh, time with a puppy probably. So, And um, a couple weeks ago, uh, we had, well, it's probably been more like a month ago now, we had um, an exposure to COVID within our veterinary team and at the shelter. And so they had to be on, most 80% of them had to be on quarantine. So I actually, I actually went down and did surgery for a few days and it was a whole bunch of fun, but not what most animal welfare CEOs would do on a random Tuesday. It was <laughs> great though. Yeah. It's, it's good to get back to the roots and Heal uh, a little. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's right. So um we're uh getting close to wrapping up here, but I want to give you a chance to tell people more about how they can find you and Dumb Friends League on social media. H how can people learn more about the organization and where can they follow you? Right. So thank you for the opportunity to share that. And we want to partner everyone that's listening, come be a partner with us. This is really exciting work. So DDFL, that stands for Denver Dumb Friends League. Technically, Denver's not in our name anymore, but that's still what the website is. So ddfl.org is our website with all of our links to all of our platforms. Um, but on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok, it's at Dumb Friends League. And on Twitter, it's at DDFL. So follow us, engage with us, ask us questions, watch our fun stories, um, be a part of what we do. Great. Thanks. Yes, I hope everyone will take the time to follow you all. And I, I can imagine that following you on social media, especially TikTok and other videos, you get a lot of good, feel good content. It's pretty amazing. Yes. Before we wrap up, I have a spur of the moment question for you. This is one uh, that oh. is a surprise for you. You do not know what's coming. Um, so if you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? 
I have this conversation frequently with my <laughs> wife and um, I've narrowed it to two um, to, it would probably be sushi. Um, although pizzas are really close. Second. <laughs> I, I'm one of those people that never can get too much pizza, <laughs> so, but sushi is just as delicious and a bit healthier. So it'd probably be sushi. Fair enough. And there's, well, I don't know. There's a lot of variety in both of those. You can do a lot of different sure. things. With it's both cheating of those. to answer that way. I know it. Well, it's not. I okay. think it's uh, stra- strategic. That's the mark of, you of your strategic thinking skills. Um, great. Well, thank you so much, April, for being here with us today. We are so excited we were able to have this conversation and thrilled to have you all and your team as part of the Vita Building at Spur opening just around the corner in January of 2022. So thanks so much for your time today and thanks for your partnership. Thank you for the opportunity. And this is an amazing partnership. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If so, please share it with a young person in your life, perhaps our next scientist, veterinarian, farmer, or teacher, and leave us a review to help others find the show. The Spur of the Moment podcast is produced by Peach Islander Productions, and our theme music is by Ketza. Please visit the show notes for links mentioned during today's episode, and for more information on how to follow April Steele and the Dumb Friends League on social media. Another big thanks to April for joining us today. We hope you'll join us for the next Spur of the Moment episode. Episodes drop every two weeks. Until then, be well.